All right, I want to start off today, uh, before we jump into the scriptures, I want to talk about my grandfather for a a minute, my dad's dad. My grandfather um, was born in the Northeast, grew up in uh, California. Uh, He was born in 1907, a lot older than all of you, any of you in here. During his lifetime, though, he witnessed an amazing amount of change. And I think I get the bug from him of loving, uh, loving change and loving technology and how technology improves our life and the, the mass shifts in things over the years. Um, he witnessed and his generation witnessed just a ton of invention and modernization and innovation from the Industrial Revolution forward. He's, again, 1907. That is just like the, the, the Industrial Revolution is still kind of moving forward uh, even at that point. Uh, even though, you know, it's from the last century, the 1800s, from water power to steam power, from horses to rail, then to cars, from dirt roads to paved roads. Like when this church was established more than 100 years ago, there were dirt roads on California. Then it went to cable cars. There was, there was, um, there were still dirt roads. Uh, there were paved roads, but there were, this church was meeting where the beer junction is in the livery stable where the horses were kept before it moved to, that was one of its first locations before it moved to the community center that was set up, okay? We're, we're talking way back then, lots of changes, right? In between 1900 and 1950, you had the advent of the mainstream use of electricity, right? Chemicals, <laughs> uh, internal combustion engine, refrigeration, right? Like you can actually store food in your house and it won't go bad. Like you think about that. You don't think about that, right? We, we don't, we take that for granted. Does that make sense? Um, then there was like different kinds of chemicals, petrochemicals, plastics, electronics, aviation, space exploration, landing on the moon. Then came the internet right after my grandfather passed away. The internet came along. I remember going to Arizona State as a student, as a pre-med student at Arizona State, and like you had, they had a T1 connection. It was like so fast. It was so slow, Uh, you know. And then at home, it was like all those weird noises, right? And uh, I had to log in to do this blackboard for my classes, and it was like super confusing. And we were using the internet, you know. My grandfather would have loved that. Digital network, software. Uh, in 1990, think about where you were in 1990 if you were alive. <laughs> um, there were approximately 2.3 million people on the internet in 1990. 2.3 million. By 2016, it was 3.4 billion. And now we're in this new era where there's clean tech that's going to maybe reshape whole business models and consumption patterns. We're talking about robots. We're talking about drones. We're talking about artificial intelligence. But my grandfather's generation and the one after it built a world just like the generation before them built a world that we, that I take for granted. It built this world, and I take it for granted. My grandfather loved technology. He had a whole room in his house, an entire room for ham radio. He's one of the guys that had this massive 
50-foot antenna bolted to the house and towering into the air in his backyard in Yuma, Arizona. The armpit of Arizona. Um, not anymore, but back then there was nothing there. I mean, nothing. Uh, and he worked for the radio and television station. Um, he had this whole room in his house. He could talk to anyone in the world over this radio just for kicks and giggles, you know, just for fun. He would make friends with people in other countries because of this technology. He ran a relay for the government in World War II. He couldn't serve because when he was younger, he got TB and he had to go to one of these camps where, where you think COVID is bad and masked and staying at home. You get TB back then and they send you to a place out in the desert like an asylum and you can't come back until <laughs> you're better, you know. And your health is severely diminished, you know. So he had that going on in his younger years, so he couldn't serve in World War II. So he was doing, he was doing um, ham radio relay, you know, for the government. His generation, because of his generation, it just built up this amazing amount of prosperity that you and I were born into. Every single one of you in this room, doesn't matter your age, you were born into an era of prosperity and we just kind of look around and we go, meh. <laughs> because this is our world and we're living in it, right? And it's what we know. We're like, so what? The ability to hop a plane and go anywhere in this country within a few hours that didn't exist before, right? For a few hundred bucks. It's just mind-blowing. Uh, to land on the moon. He thought that was mind-blowing, you know, to look up any information we need, not even on a computer, on a computer in your pocket, and it's at your fingertips, and you can just grab whatever you need, figure it out. I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know how many pints are in a quart and all, you know, <laughs> when I'm trying to bake something and I'm trying to figure that out, you know. Mind-blowing stuff. You could just get that information. Um, you know, they're talking about rockets now i mean i'm just blown away by spacex rockets that all the stuff i watched in sci-fi growing up right i'm blown away that they can go up in the air they can shoot them off from texas or florida and then they can land on a ship that's the size of this room land vertically and they reuse it every time dozens of these launches and landings again now they do it every time. It's like watching a spaceship take off in, a, in Star Trek or Star Wars and then it lands again. And you're like, that is really happening now. And they're talking about how you can pay maybe a couple thousand dollars and you need to get to Tokyo like in an hour. Okay, if you live near a spaceport, you can do that. It'll happen. It will happen. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, what does that have to do with Solomon? Because today we're going to talk about Solomon in the Bible, who is this interesting dichotomy of a person. Again, we're in chapter 13. We're going to be in a couple places in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles in the Bible. But turn to chapter 13 if you want. And I'm going to put some scriptures up on the screen for you to bring you along because this is a large story that we are talking about. There are some questions that Solomon's life raises 
that I think we need to wrestle with. And one of the things we're going to look at is prosperity. The idea of people who came before you, who invented and dreamed and innovated to build amazing achievements and prosperity. And because we're born into that, we don't think anything of it. I'm, I'm just blown away. Like I told you about these rockets, about electric cars of all kinds, you know, about I want to plug my car in at my house like I do my phone and never go to a gas station line again, you know, unless it's for some toy that Mike Shaughnessy's built and I want to ride on it, you know. Uh, it's crazy stuff. It's just this, we are stuck. I mean, my kids, my future grandkids, they just won't see the stuff that I'm talking about now. They'll just be like, "This what? Rockets take off. Yeah, they're spaceports. Dad, can we go to the spaceport? I want to go to Tokyo Disneyland. Tokyo Sea. Tomorrow. Can we leave right now? You know, I mean, that's what it's going to, they're going to, they're going to take it for granted. And we're in this cycle of history where we take for granted what came before us and who built it, right? And they did the same thing. And they did the same thing. Back to us. <laughs> This is when entitlement develops as well. When a certain kind of expectation of the lifestyle that you want or that you expect develops. And once that happens, there are all kinds of problems that come with that. And ultimately, you can see the demise of all kinds of things. But Solomon's life paints a pretty incredible picture of everything that I just described to you. So I want to I start. Basically, we're going to hit the highlights today. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3, and I want to introduce you to him this way. It says this, the king, this is talking about Solomon now, Solomon is king, not his dad, David. He went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So this is before there was a temple, right? Because David and his dad are going to build the temple. So they're offering uh, sacrifices at a high place. So this guy, just in case you glazed over when we just said that in case you missed it in case you weren't really reading what it said he offered how many a thousand this dude is serious about his worship and i don't think he did that on his own i mean like to butcher an animal you know and all that like did he do that to a thousand animals on his own probably not and then it goes on. It says that Gibeon, the Lord, appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And we're all like, yes, please. <laughs> right? Well, Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now before, <laughs> let's stop there a second. I want you to look at those last three lines. You continue this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Why does Solomon believe that he is on the throne? Why does he believe that he's on the throne? He believes he's on the throne because of the faithfulness of who? His father, his dad. And he's right about that. He is on the throne because of the faithfulness of his dad which should raise some questions for us. First of all, what kind of blessings, or for that matter, cursings, because we don't all have parents who give us blessings, but what kind of blessings have been handed down to us because of the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness of our parents? 
or our grandparents. Like what part of the blessing that I live on in my life is a result of my parents' prayers for me? Not everybody has that. You know what I'm saying? It's a good question because we often think that it's because of the power of our own hands, the power of our own ingenuity, the power of our own mind, the power of our own work, because of us, because of ourself, that we've amassed whatever we've amassed, that we've created whatever empire for ourselves that we've created for, you know, for us to use. And I don't think we give credit where credit is due, which is why I led in with all that stuff that's changed and who built it and how we take it for granted. And what we're going to see with Solomon is that he's, he's going to start well. There's a pattern here, just like his dad did. He's going to start well. He's going to give credit where credit's due in this conversation that he's having in this dream with God. But he's not going to finish that way. And the kingdom is going to be taken out of his hands. It's going to be ripped away from him. What have you received that you take for granted? What's the blessing that we live in and enjoy that came from the faithfulness of those who came before us? And if you think like me, that raises an equally, an equally important question. <laughs> you know, what blessing are you leaving for those who come after you? Right? So Solomon recognizes this stuff at the beginning of his reign. He understands that the position that he's in is not because he's better than anyone else or smarter than anyone else, or that he deserves it more than someone else. It's there because of the faithfulness of his dad. And that's a very important point. And then it says in verse 7, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Which I can't read that without channeling Jack Black, Nacho Libre. My duties, you know. Uh, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning hearts, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me, if you walk in obedience to me, and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then he gave a feast for all his court. So he goes to Gibeon right before this dream. He, gives a, he makes a thousand sacrifices. And then he, go, he goes to sleep. He has a vision. He has this dream where God speaks to him. He wakes up from that dream. He goes to Jerusalem. He makes more sacrifices. Remember that sacrifices are an act of worship for them. So he is off the charts with worship. And this is the beginning of his rule. Now, there's this thing about Solomon that you need to know. Maybe you've met some people like this. He's one of these guys who is always in the right time. He's there at the right time, in the right place, with the right opportunity. And he just makes money. This guy, he just, 
he he just gets it right every time. It's like he just prospers without even trying. Have any of you ever met somebody like this? I'm not one of these people. I, this has not happened to me. This is this is who Solomon is. He just acquires absolutely everything, wealth and stuff and this huge empire. And while he was just this amazing, prosperous, money-making, expanding the kingdom machine with all this ability, it leads to his downfall. Because this thing that's in him, given by God, becomes something that he uses not to expand God's kingdom, but to expand his own kingdom. He's not interested in expanding God's kingdom. He's not interested in what we talked about a few weeks ago, Kadush Hashem, hallow the name of God, is what that means. When Jesus, his disciples ask him to pray, our Father who art in heaven, Kadush Hashem, hallowed be thy name. Give honor to God. Instead, he's interested in bringing honor to himself. He uses his ability to expand his own kingdom. And so he starts, he actually starts doing some pretty messed up stuff. He starts making treaties with kingdoms he wasn't supposed to be dealing with. And the reason he wasn't supposed to be doing this is because the custom at the time was that if you made a treaty with another kingdom or tribe, what they would do to seal that pact is they would give you a a daughter to be one of your queens. And the thinking back then was like, hey, well, if you have, if my daughter's in your country and married to you, I'm not going to attack you because if I attack you, I might, I might hurt or kill my daughter in the process of war, right? So their logic behind this is like, if we give and intermarry, this has gone on for centuries, right? Then we won't fight each other, right? But God knows that if the king does this, his heart will be stolen away from God and given to other gods, other idols, other things that want and desire the king's worship. So Solomon ends up with, wait for it, 700 wives and 300 porcupines, I mean concubines. I meant to do that. 300 concubines because of all these treaties. How many stinking treaties do you need? Are you really after the treaties, dude? Like, I don't, like, ultimately, this leads to his demise. And, and this thing in him, like, he's just like, bigger, better, stronger, awesomer, you know. I want everything to be just like that. It consumes him, and it leads his heart away from God. And if you haven't realized this yet, there, I don't know if any of you have realized this. I'm sure some of you have. But there are actually two accountings in your scriptures about the lives of David and his son Solomon. In First and Second Samuel, we have the first accounting of David and his son Solomon. Um, and this is written when the events are actually happening. Someone who was there is writing these. The author centers these stories in First and Second Samuel uh, of David and Solomon on their morality and their whole, their sexual immorality and their issues with women. And then in First and Second Chronicles, later we get the story retold. And it's another, it's the, it's an other, another story set about them. And it's written later, and it's like looking back on their lives. And this writer in Chronicles centers the story of David's and Solomon's lives on not on the women and all that stuff that messed them up, 
but on money and the temple and power and prestige. It's very, very different than the account in 1 Samuel. And the point seems to be, from the perspective of Chronicles, that the same root that led David's and Solomon's bad moral choices with women, it also drove them to create the temple. Because we, like we said last week, oh, they created the temple. Yay. It's so great. God now has a place to live. He's been in a tent. You know? Not, you know, it's not, it's not what they've done building the temple is not to bring honor to God, but to set themselves apart and gain power and prestige and glory for themselves. They just want a name for themselves, right? It's like they take the concept of Kadush Hashem, hallow the name, and they steal it for themselves. Hallow my name, right? Same motivation behind both tellings of the story in First and Second Samuel as in First and Second Chronicles, but focusing on different things and outcomes. And so I want to look at First Chronicles 22 with you. Let's start here in verse 5. It says, David said... My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. We covered this last week. If you were here last week, did God tell anybody to, did he ask anybody to build him a temple? No. No. He literally says this to David. He's like, look, I didn't tell anybody to build me a temple. Look, man, I've been living in a tent since I rescued you from Egypt, and I'm fine with that. But if you need a temple for me, then go on with your bad self. You can do that. Uh, fine. You do that. Okay? And God provides some very simple instructions, some very humble instructions for a dwelling. But David says it needs to be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the sight of the nations. And the real question here is, Fame and splendor for who? That's the question. Fame and splendor for who? This isn't really about their God. This is about these leaders and their people, their nation, looking like they're a big deal on the international scene. This is because David, like we've talked about before, is always tired of being the underdog. He doesn't like being the underdog. He wants his nation to look awesome so that he looks awesome. And what better way to look awesome than to build an awesome temple for our awesome God, right? But it's not about God. It's about him. Now Solomon, that was David. Now Solomon, his son, with his ability to make everything bigger and better and awesomer, right? With that kind of motivation, he just dials it up. And he, like, he just goes for broke. Look, here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 3. Listen to this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. He was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Who cares? He's building it, right? The foundation Solomon laid for building the temple of God was 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, using the cubit, of course, using the cubit of the old standard, right? <laughs> Whatever. That, okay. The portico, the front of the temple, was 20 cubits long across the width of the building and 20 cubits high. It's like 90 feet by 40 feet, okay? It's not a small space. It's not huge. It's pretty good for back then. He overlaid the inside. Imagine this room overlaid in pure gold. 
He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main hall with juniper and covered it with fine gold and decorated it with palm, with palm tree and chain designs. He adorned the temple with precious stones, and the gold he used was gold of Parvain. He overlaid the ceiling beams, door frames, walls, and doors of the temple with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. This is what Solomon does. Awesomer. <laughs> you didn't really want this in the first place, God. <laughs> But my dad did, so you gave him some plans. My dad amplified that, and I looked at that, but I'm like, dude, come on, guys. I'm going to the next level. I'm going to ratchet this thing up further. It is way larger than the humble plans that God originally gave David. And his temple, Solomon's temple, you can look this up online. What did it look like? Google it. And there's all these models and representations of what it looks like. It is an absolute spectacle to behold. It is a spectacle. I mean, the Queen of Sheba comes to check it out. But she doesn't come to check it out so that she can worship their God. She comes just to see the building in all of its splendor because it's just a spectacle. And the point is this. The emphasis was taken off of their God and put onto God's house which is why God maybe didn't want a house in the first place. The building, the building, he agrees to it. Why? Because the building is not evil. Right? The building doesn't have any moral agency. It doesn't make choices. <laughs> right? The building's not evil. There's nothing wrong with the building. Buildings are tools to help us worship God. They are tools to provide a launch pad for ministry. They were back then. That's what God wanted for ministry in our community. Buildings aren't evil. But when you make the building the point, then it's entirely outside of God's plan and agenda. And I've seen this. You've probably seen this too. I've seen this over and over and over again. Churches I've grown up in, churches that I've worked in, in our friends' churches. My wife and I have friends who are pastors, uh, and they lament this fact. What happens is, little by little by little, buildings become the point. And I'm not just talking about maintenance. I'm just talking like people get upset about things. I know a pastor who they built a new building and he was so ticked off about how people get all like hoity-toity about, well, let's pick the colors, the carpet, the paint. You know, we better be nice. We better keep it nice. Those kids better not mess it up. And he's like, you know what we're going to do when we build this building? We're going we're gonna to cut the yellow ribbon. We're going to walk in. I'm going to take a five-pound sledgehammer and I'm going to bust a hole right in the wall. We're going to plaque it over with plexiglass and we're going to say, put a plaque on it that says, it's just a building. <laughs> to get stuff done, to be about the work. Now, it's not just the building. Actually, he had some people come to him and say, you know, that's probably not a good idea to do that. People gave a lot of money for this building. You better respect it, uh, you know, but, but you get the point, right? It is, both points are valid, but when the building becomes a point of everything you do, it's not good. And so I've heard for years things like this, the youth room or the kids' room is left a mess, you know, those doggone kids, they never clean up. They ruined something. They broke something. Never mind that they were doing ministry there till like 9, 30, 10, 11 o'clock at night and kids' lives are being changed. They never clean up. Okay. Priorities, right? Buildings are tools for ministry. Programs are tools for ministry. Sometimes programs have shelf lives. They do. They expire. 
Sometimes they have expiration dates and you need to discover or invent new ideas and programs that are in line with values and vision. If, I mean, think about it. If I were doing, if we were still trying to communicate not with the internet, but with ham radio, I mean, that has its uses if the internet breaks. You need some people to know some ham radio, right? And some Morse code and that kind of thing. But we need to invent and discover new things that are in line with our values, that are in line with our vision as a church. And the values, our values don't change. You know, be with Jesus, do things together for the sake of others with generosity. That value will never change. But because of those values, our vision changes because the environment changes, the terrain changes, right? We create a vision window and we look out the window when you're driving. If you keep your vision the same, you're going to wreck your car, the view changes, and you need to turn the wheel. <laughs> the values say to change. The engine's still running. The engine's still good. You put gas in the tank. The values never change, but the hills and the mountains you take, maybe the terrain, the environment, it shifts and changes around you, so the vision changes. The values we've had as a church have not changed. But if we're still trying to operate uh, ministry the way it was done 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Then we make an idol of something that God never wanted. If we make the building the point or any other thing than God as the focal point, then whatever that thing is becomes an idol and we become Solomon. That's what happens. Check out Psalm 22 for a minute. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. In verse 3, it says, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. There's lots of different versions of this. I like the one. There's another, another uh, translation that says this. You are enthroned on the praises of your people. Where does God sit on his throne? When we as a community praise him. He doesn't sit on a throne in our building. But when a community of people praise him, he lives there. So the question is, do you want to see God move in this community? It's not going to be because we gold-plated our building or had any particular service in any particular room at any particular time the way it was always done or got back to some program the way it used to be. It's going to be because we chose to praise our God and stay true to our focus on him and becoming like his son Jesus, and this matters. That matters supremely. And Solomon lets the splendor and the grandeur and the spectacle of it all become too much. It's too much for him. Look what happens in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, whoever loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites. Remember we talked about Moabites and Ammonites a few weeks ago? Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn. It's not just because they're like evil or wicked or, you know, there's something less. It's because they're going to turn you away from me, is what he says. They will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon 
did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did. And when it says he it says he followed, it doesn't just mean he gave intellectual assent and thought or believed something in his brain. It means he went through with the actions prescribed for how you worship these gods, which I don't have time to go into, but it's really, really bad and really gross and really disgusting and really evil. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry, no kidding, with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Which I look at that and I go, you know, I think, I've said this. Maybe you've said this. You've maybe heard people say this. I wish God would just show up and tell me what he wants. Like, if he just showed up, it, I would follow him if he just showed up in my life and tell me what he wants me to do. Give me what I need to do what needs to be done. He did all this for Solomon. Why, when we say things like that, do you think you really would? No, you wouldn't. I mean, we, we, we want to say, I'll be different. I'll be different. I don't think you or I would. He appeared to Solomon twice, and Solomon didn't. What makes you and me different? It says in verse 10, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates, which God did. He did that. Solomon starts his kingdom at the beginning of the hour. He starts his kingdom giving how many sacrifices? To God? A thousand. To the God of his father, David. And he's humble about it. When God comes to him in the dream, he says, you know, God, I know that it's from you and I get the strength from you alone to do this. It's not in my strength. Let me have a discerning heart is what he says so that I can rule your people well, not my mistakes, not screw things up. And God's like, man, Solomon, that is really well-spoken. I can get behind that. And somewhere along the way, he starts to believe that it is okay, not just to believe, but to practice the practices of worship for other gods that demand child sacrifice. That's who all those other gods are. And it's not just that he's doing it in private. He's setting up in the presence, in the view from Jerusalem, He's setting up these other hills and places for people to do this right there for everyone to see. How do you get from worshiping a God that's about giving people value, realizing the potential, lifting them up, telling you that you're able to be set apart? Don't enslave others. Remember where you came from, but love others and put God on display. How do you get from that to child sacrifice. How is that okay? And the ultimate question for Solomon is, did he actually get it all figured out in the end? I don't know if you know this, but there's another book in your Bible that's actually attributed to Solomon. You know what that's called? Ecclesiastes. You ever heard of that book? Short and sweet. You ought to read it sometime. The answer to that question, did he get it all figured out, is we don't know if he got it all figured out. What we do know is that the book of Ecclesiastes is attributed to him. The main point of Ecclesiastes is found in chapter 12. It says this, this is the sole duty of man 
to fear the Lord and keep his commands. Which makes it seem like he got it figured out, right? It kind of depends on when he wrote it. Did he write it at the beginning of his life? Did he write it early on and then everything went downhill? Because if that's the way he did it, then no, he didn't figure it out. He wrote it at the beginning and then it all went south, right? If he wrote it at the end of his life, however, then maybe he got back on track. But I can't tell you one way or the other. I don't know if he did. We just don't know. What we do know, though, is that when he is succeeded by his son, Rehoboam, Solomon dies. Rehoboam gets the kingship. In 2 Chronicles 10, when his life is over and he's dead and he's gone, the people come to Rehoboam and they say, look, we, we will, he takes the throne and people say, we will follow you. But don't treat us like your dad did. And Solomon had all the grandeur and the splendor and the glory and the spectacle and people were coming. He had the name. He had the power. He had the privilege. And they say, well, look, we'll follow you, but, we, but don't treat us like your dad. And what that tells us is that even though Solomon did all those amazing things, built the temple, expanded the kingdom, gained notoriety amongst the most powerful people of the age, and even though it was a great time of economic prosperity, no one who helped him build it wants more of the same. Nobody wants it because all that prosperity was built on the back of other people who did all the work. He enslaved other people. He enslaved his own people to get the job done. So we learn this super valuable lesson from Solomon's life that we stand on the shoulders of those who were faithful before us. But the hardest part of living in that blessing is actually living in it. And I mean living in it, being fully aware of what was given to you so that you don't take it for granted and you don't make the same mistakes that were made in the past. What Solomon seemed to understand in the beginning it looks like he forgot it in the end. And the lesson we glean is that living in the blessings that have been handed down to us is difficult, right? Because we take things for granted. And little by little, we start to believe that our life consists in the abundance of the things that we achieve, the abundance of our possessions and the things that we accumulate. And that's our life. And we whine at God because we don't have a certain lifestyle like somebody else does. Or we don't have this or that that somebody else does. Does anybody in here want to end up like Solomon, though? Striving for all that, and then the generation that comes after is like, yeah, that actually wasn't that great. You're the, the blessing is actually a curse. We don't want any more of that. And here's the thing. Wealth and stuff isn't bad. Just like the building, the temple wasn't bad. It has no moral compass. Stuff doesn't have a moral compass. Wealth doesn't have a moral compass. The question is, What's the motivation that drives us to acquire those things? What is our motivation? Is it just me, 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 more, more, more? Is it your honor or is it God's honor? Kadush Hashem. And I'll just leave you with this thought before we go into our uh, discussion groups, our table groups here. The world needs shepherds. The world needs shepherds. God's trying to tell us something about a baby born in a stable. <laughs> 
in really humble beginnings, who's the king of the world, the king of the universe, with a family line of shepherding. And shepherds and sheep are there who come to sing him praise, who hear this good news about him. The world needs shepherds that really care about it. Your neighbors, your friends, your family, they need shepherds who will care for them and help them realize their full potential in Jesus. They need shepherds who will equip and encourage them to live into their God-given identity and calling. Give your life to that, and your life will be full. It will be full.